Welcome. The following presentation from Answers in CME is part of an educational activity titled Exploring Add-on Biologics for Moderate to Severe Asthma in Pediatric Patients. To access the full program and supporting materials, please visit the activity URL in the episode description. This activity is supported by an independent medical education grant from Regeneron Pharmaceuticals Incorporated and Sanofi. Hello, I'm Dr. Teresa Gilbert. I'm a professor of pediatrics at Cincinnati Children's Hospital and Medical Center and the University of Cincinnati. We're going to discuss how to identify and treat children with uncontrolled asthma using biologic therapies. So let's begin with identifying these children. First of all, it's important to understand that there's a wider umbrella of kids that are difficult to treat, and this could be because they have increased exacerbations, that they have increased symptoms as measured by the childhood asthma test questionnaire, coughing, wheezing during the day, waking up at night. So it gives you an idea of how controlled their symptoms are. What we want to do is decide if they really have severe treatment-resistant asthma or not. So we're going to evaluate, are they adherent to their treatment? Are they taking their treatment correctly? What kind of environmental exposure do they have? You also want to consider whether they have psychosocial issues, such as depression or anxiety, and whether they have common comorbidities seen in asthma, such as severe eczema or sleep disorders. Another area would be seeing if they have allergic sensitization and looking for signs of lung function that support the diagnosis of asthma. Also, it can be important to look at airway structure and cytology to make sure that that's concordant with asthma, and also look at corticosteroid responsiveness. If you've gone through that entire evaluation, you may diagnose them with having severe therapy-resistant asthma. So what are some factors associated with difficult-to-treat asthma? It's characterized by persistently low lung function, although we can catch that during exacerbations in some children. Seasonal symptom variability, such as increased symptoms in the fall and winter during viral season. And higher exacerbation frequency in the spring and fall when allergen season is at its highest. So there are two definitions of severe asthma. I think the key difference between GINA and ERS and ATS definitions is that ERS and ATS brings up the fact that sometimes systemic corticosteroids are used to control asthma to keep it from becoming uncontrolled. They both talk about how high doses of inhaled corticosteroid and a second controller are needed to either maintain control or despite that treatment, they're uncontrolled. So just keep in mind that simply using oral corticosteroids to control the disease is an option that can be associated with significant side effects. So here we're looking at a study of children and adults that were treated with maintenance oral corticosteroids. Now keep in mind, this is only required for a minority of patients with severe disease, approximately 30% of adults, or some pediatric patients, and less than 30%. And there's increased risk for GI bleeding, sepsis, pneumonia, cataracts, and even bone fractures. So let's discuss when we would consider intensifying treatment with biologics, and then we'll go into the efficacy of the ones now available for younger children. Let's discuss when one would consider intensifying treatment with biologics and then go into the efficacy of the ones now available for younger children. So here we're looking at an update by the Global International Asthma or GINA guidelines. In general, the recommendation is to use either medium or high-dose inhaled corticosteroid plus a long-acting beta agonist. 
There's also a new strategy that's been introduced called MART, Maintenance and Reliever Therapy, which is where you use low to higher dose ICS and Fomoterol as both a maintenance therapy as well as the reliever therapy because Fomoterol has an onset of 10 to 15 minutes, very similar to albuterol. New to the guidelines are when to refer to an expert. That would be at step four for the younger children, at step five for the older children. And then at step five for both groups is where you really start thinking about phenotyping, especially for patients that aren't doing well on higher dose of ICS and LABA, and considering an add-on therapy such as biologics. There's FDA-approved biologic therapy for younger children and older children. So those that are approved for six and above are alamizumab, which is an anti-IgE for moderate to severe asthma. Mepolizumab, which is an anti-IL-5 medication, we use it in severe eosinophilic asthma. The last is dupilumab, which is an anti-IL-4 receptor alpha antagonist. It's used in patients with moderate to severe eosinophilic asthma, those with oral corticosteroid-dependent asthma, or those with an elevated fractional exhaled nitric oxide. In the older children, we have benrolizumab, which is an anti-IL-4 receptor alpha antagonist used in severe eosinophilic asthma, and tezipelumab, which is a thymixtromal lipoprotein cytokine target. It's used in patients with severe asthma of any phenotype. Here we're looking at the efficacy of dupilumab in ages 6 to 11 years. You can see that reduced severe exacerbation rates were seen more likely in the dupilumab-treated group compared to placebo. You'll see also that blood eosinophils of 300 or greater, blood eosinophils of 150, and elevated nitric oxide all had a reduced severe exacerbation rate, which favored dupilumab compared to placebo. Looking at changes in baseline percent predicted force expiratory volume in one second, an increase was seen in all those phenotypic subgroups that favored dupilumab compared to placebo. Looking at the efficacy of alamizumab in ages 6 to 20 years, the alamizumab group had reduced exacerbations compared to the placebo group. The FEV1% predicted was very high in both groups, but there was no significant difference between the treatment groups across the study. Looking at the efficacy of mepolizumab in ages 6 to 17 years, as seen in the Muppets 2 study in pediatric patients with severe eosinophilic asthma, the treatment group with mepolizumab had an exacerbation rate of 0.96, whereas the placebo group was 1.3. There was no significant differences in lung function or other secondary outcomes seen. Now let's look at the key safety indications for biologics almost universal to any biologics that are used in any disease are hypersensitivity reactions. So be aware that almost universally you can have local site reactions with a little bit of erythema and swelling. Those aren't what we're talking about when we consider discontinuing treatment. Those are expected, especially kids that have hypergraphism. First of all, there are several possible unique adverse events type 2, more extensive hypersensitivity reactions where you have like hives across the body, where the children have worsening limb swelling and other things, where you really do think it's connected to a biologic therapy, that's when we consider discontinuing treatment. So biologic therapy that's been described as having hypersensitivity reactions would be alamizumab, mepolizumab, or dupilumab. 
Anaphylaxis is a very rare side effect to biologic therapy. In the case of alamizumab, where it's been described, it's about 0.4%. And this is why the FDA label recommends that patients always carry epinephrine pens if they're treated with this. It's important to note that the anaphylaxis was mainly described in adults and not children. Eosinophilia, about 6%, has been described with dupilumab. And therefore, we don't typically start it in patients that have high baseline eosinophils. Parasitic infections of about 3% have also been described with dupilumab. This is typically in countries outside the U.S., and the recommendation is to treat that pre-existing infection, or if they develop while they're on it, to stop the therapy, treat them, and then put them back on. Now let's discuss how to use biomarkers to help select a biologic for a particular patient. So here we're looking at biomarkers of type 2 inflammation. So again, we use the phenotype. We think someone might be allergic, but we endotype them or use these biomarkers to determine what the mechanism of their disease might be. So exhaled nitric oxide production, this is induced by IL-13 and IL-4, which trigger INOS production, which leads to exhaled nitric oxide in spaces such as nasal cavity or airways. Eosinophil activation is perpetuated by IL-5, which increases the activation, survival, and mobilization from the bone marrow to the blood. IL-4 and IL-13 are both involved with trafficking to lung tissue, and IL-5 promotes survival in peripheral tissues such as airways or lungs. IL-4 and IL-13 are also involved in B-cell class switching to increase IgE production. That leads to activation of mast cells and basophils, which each can release cytokines, histamine, leukotrienes, and other factors that can promote airway swelling and airway constriction. Let's talk about what biomarkers are important by phenotype for each medication. So there's the anti-IL-4 receptor alpha antagonist uh, for dupilumab. Eligibility criteria usually include exacerbations in the past year, blood eosinophils of 150 but below 1,500, or exhaled nitric oxide of 25 or above, or taking maintenance oral corticosteroids. Potential predictors of response as seen in the literature would be higher blood eosinophils, which is a strong response factor, or higher exhaled nitric oxide, which is also a strong risk factor. Looking at alamizumab eligibility criteria, usually you need to be sensitized to at least one error allergen, either by skin prick testing or a specific IgE. And you need to have a total serum IgE and weight that fall within the dosing range. So if you have someone who's very heavy or has a high IgE, they may fall outside that dosing range. And they need to have exacerbations in the past year. Potential predictors of response are blood eosinophils of 260 cells per microliter or greater, exhaled nitric oxide of 20 and above, allergy-driven symptoms, and childhood onset asthma. Looking at phenotype treatment selection for anti-IL-5 or mepolizumab, eligibility criteria usually include exacerbations in the past year, blood eosinophils of at least 150 or greater. Potential predictors of response are higher blood eosinophils, which are strong, more exacerbations in the previous year, which is also a strong factor, adult onset of asthma, and nasal polyposis. Let's bring this all together to improve outcome in these patients and highlight the importance of co-management in the care of these patients.
One thing to discuss with your patients is how some of these biologic therapies are approved for other comorbid conditions that are common to asthma, such as atopic dermatitis, which has an approval for dupilumab, also chronic idiopathic urticaria, which alamizumab is approved for, chronic rhinosinusitis with nasal polyps. Several biologics are approved for this indication, including dupilumab, mepolizumab, and olimizumab. Also, eosinophilic esophagitis has an indication with dupilumab. It's also very important to have a shared decision-making process with your patients. It's really a conversation between the clinician, the parent, and the child. Practices that adopt a shared decision-making model are associated with improved quality of life and asthma control. The CHESS Foundation has a nice tool that can be supportive in this practice. So. What are some key challenges to introducing biologics to patients and bringing them into your practice? First of all, it does take several visits to counsel families to consider biologic use. Often children are not thrilled about injectable therapies, and so talking them through that can be important. Getting insurance approval for use of these biologics can take some time and persistence, and sometimes the formularies have first-line therapies that you need to use, and getting up-to-date on that can be important. Also, stressing the importance of adherence when a child is on biologics, not only with the biologic therapy, but with daily controller therapy as well. And then at-home versus in-clinic administration, especially for younger kids, is also an important part of the discussion. Ultimately, co-management between primary and subspecialist care is important. Not only do some of my patients come from far away, but their primary care doctors actually have to help me give the patient these medications that they're given in clinic. And they also help treatment monitoring. So this could be immediate responses to the medications or longer term monitoring of therapy. Also, having primary care access for management of acute asthma episodes remains important. Another important thing would be primary care access for management of acute asthma episodes and the availability of specialists who can manage other conditions such as severe atopic dermatitis or eosinophilic esophagitis. So this is an exciting time as there are several new effective treatments for severe asthma. These treatments help control this serious disease and improve the quality of life for the children we care for. I really look forward to seeing what additional therapies are approved for children with severe asthma so we can continue to improve the care for this population. Thank you for listening. Please visit the activity URL in the episode description to view all program materials, complete the post-test, and get a certificate.